This is The Guardian. Hey, it's Mike. All of this week, we're bringing you a special investigation into royal wealth and finances. As Britain prepares for the coronation of King Charles III, Maeve McLennigan and her colleagues in the investigations team tell you the story of what the modern monarchy actually costs and how they hide their riches from public view. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's a bright blue-skied morning in early April, the eve of the Easter weekend. The church bells of York Minster are ringing out as the crowds gather around the cathedral. In a few minutes, King Charles and Queen Camilla will be driven up to the entrance for an ancient ritual called Maundy Money, an act of charity marking the end of Lent. As I make my way through the crowd, I can see parents with young children, older couples waving Union Jack flags, families who've travelled here to see King Charles just a few weeks before his coronation. We actually stayed overnight. We've come from Glossop in North Derbyshire. Um, we heard he was coming, so we thought, hey, it's the King of England. Let's go and see him. And are you fans of the royal family? Of course we are. This is, a, this is the Great Britain. Why would we be otherwise? If you don't like him, go and live somewhere else. What is it that you like about King Charles specifically? He's just a person. He's one of us. I mean, I think in the past the monarchy's been seen as being us and them, but I think he's bringing it a bit more down to our level now. But as the bells toll, I can hear the sounds of a pretty vocal counter-demonstration. To the right of the entrance, there's a sizable group of protesters carrying signs that say, Not my king. Okay, my name's Liz, uh, and I'm here to protest the coronation um, and to highlight the the waste of money that is being spent um, when we're in a cost of living crisis. I was in York last night, and the number of homeless people on the street. I think it just. I mean, this man is here as a token of his benevolence to us peasants, and it's absolutely diabolical. There's a number of anti-monarchy groups here. Liz is from the campaign organisation Republic. And so what's the plan then when you see Charles today? What's going to happen? Uh, There's going to be a lot of noise, a lot of booing, um, a lot of chanting. I mean, we are here really to just be that counter voice and to make people think and question as to what, what is actually going on here, that we are you know, kind of unquestioningly supporting somebody who's already, well, a family who are already multi-millionaires. And that's exactly what happened. As King Charles pulled up to the church, he was met with a wall of cheers, but also booing and chanting. 
Inside, the service runs more smoothly. Charles hands out white and red velvet bags containing symbolic silver coins. It's a striking image, and one of the rare times a sovereign can be seen handling money. Carrying cash is normally seen as beneath the dignity of the monarch. And talking about their own wealth, well, that's even more off-limits. The fact is, as we approach the first coronation of the 21st century, no one really knows how rich the royals actually are. It's something that myself and the Guardian Investigations team have been digging into for months. What we found is a culture of entrenched secrecy. A sense that the usual rules for public figures or private citizens simply do not apply to them. And we found a lot more. From The Guardian, I'm Maeve McLennigan. Today in Focus, Cost of the Crown. Part one, Valuing the Family. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty. This story begins in September last year. The palace has just issued uh, this statement. It says the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The death of the Queen brought Britain to a standstill and set in motion days of ceremony, showing the world a country in mourning in all its symbolic splendour. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, it is my most sorrowful duty to announce to you the death of my beloved mother, the Queen. I know how deeply you, the entire nation, and I think I may say the whole world, sympathise with me in the irreparable loss we've all suffered. Among those sitting down to watch it all was David Pegg from the Guardian's investigation team. My th- first thought is probably this is... a you know, a huge moment for the country. And for, and, and for the, the family, it's a really sad moment. It's also a sense that you're, you're transitioning, you know, to, to, to a new king. And, and the feeling of kind of possibility of things being different and that you're, for the first time in a very long time, there is going to be a new monarch. But underpinning it all is that, for us, I think, was that sense of frustration that despite having written about this, reported on this for several years, this is still an institution about which we know so very little. Very little is put in the public domain. It's a very controlled conversation, what normally happens about the monarchy. And very often that kind of constrains the discussion of things that we think are really important. David has spent years writing about royal secrecy, trying to prise open official files and testing the limits of what the family are allowed to keep hidden from the public. And this moment, the death of one monarch and the ascendance of the heir to the throne, could be the time to get answers to some pretty basic questions. For example, what will King Charles inherit from his mother? Ordinarily, when somebody dies, their will goes into something called probate. That means that the will becomes public, so that uh, anyone who might be a beneficiary can check and see if they were given, were left anything by the deceased. With the 
Windsor family, for the basically the last hundred years, judges have sealed every single will um, after a, what is ordinarily an, an entirely secret hearing. The monarch is actually different still in that there's a law that says, ever since Queen Victoria's time, there's a law that says the monarch's will can never be published. Um, so that is completely secret. In other words, if we're to find out anything about what the Windsors are worth, it's not going to come from the Queen's will. We'll need to look elsewhere. And so David sits down with the investigation team editors and they decide it's time for a proper look at royal finances. I think it felt like the right time to do it because if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? What's the purpose of auditing royal wealth, trying to find out... uh, how much they have, how much has come from public purse. How much so a team of Guardian reporters is formed and we start meeting under wraps to work out just how we're going to look into the murky issue of royal finance. Because we live in a democracy and we ought to know this stuff. You know, the, the royal family, they're just public servants. Um, public servants who are elected or not elected, we know, you know, how much money they, what their salaries are, what What becomes clear as we talk is that we, and the general public, are accustomed to very public displays of the grandeur associated with the crown, the palaces, jewels, regalia. But what is hidden is the private wealth of individual members of the royal family. That is a closely guarded secret. But there have been moments when we've gotten a glimpse of their private wealth. They sold a lot of newspapers in Britain today, and they all had the same story, the divorce. It was finally the Queen who put her royal foot down, in effect ordering her son and daughter-in-law to end it all. End the public bickering, the humiliation, the gossip, and the guessing. A divorce settlement worth £17 million. Prince Andrew has reached a financial settlement with Virginia Dufresne. And this is what court documents have just revealed. This is a report that we're just hearing. Payments to an alleged sexual assault victim, possibly as much as £12 million. The moment Harry and Meghan left Britain for North America. In an Instagram post, the couple explained they would step back as senior royals and would aim to become financially independent. It seems the update caught even the Queen off her guard. She's reported to be hurt. It's times like these, when it's difficult to untangle which part of the Windsor's wealth are inextricably linked to their position, the public money that funds the Crown, and what is theirs personally. Now, the palace's official website is quite blunt. It says, quote... The monarchy has sometimes been described as an expensive institution, with royal finances shrouded in confusion and secrecy. It goes on. In reality, the royal household is committed to ensuring that public money is spent as wisely and efficiently as possible, and to making royal finances as transparent and comprehensible as possible. You want me to just scream? (laughs) Without swearing, without screaming, what's your response to that? Um, Look, I mean, they are incredibly transparent about the things that they're perfectly happy to have out and about, right? So what's different about this family is their private wealth is 
largely, if not entirely, derived from their public position. This is public money. They're a, they, they don't have some other job that they're getting kind of really rich off. You know, this is all public money that's been paid out to them. There's nothing illicit about it, but it's just a perfectly reasonable question to say, well, h- how well off are you as a result of that? You know, you, the public are entitled to a discussion about how public money is spent, including on the monarchy. And yet those discussions... Any debate about royal finance just doesn't happen. That lack of information hasn't escaped the attention of academic Anna Whitelock. I'm Professor Anna Whitelock and I am a historian of modern monarchy, um, which perhaps sounds like a contradiction in terms, but quite deliberately it's um, bringing to the study of monarchy a historical perspective, which I think is often lacking. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very difficult to get behind uh, the uh, confected image of the royal family, which in many ways, the idea that it's merely ceremonial and benign is actually not true. And although we get perhaps seduced by royal weddings and christenings and royal walkabouts and all of that, actually, that is a distraction. Um to what this institution does, has, and its significance. And, you know, there is just this sense of this the magic of monarchy, the mystique of monarchy, which we mustn't shatter. And behind that is a whole level of power and influence. And I think that the very least, the public should be informed by the media. So the idea that the media simply reports on where they're going and what they're doing, the royals, without that level of questioning, I think is really, really negligent. So we are going to try and unpick this this Gordian knot, I guess, of the royal wealth and how much that they are worth as individuals. Would you have any advice, given all your research and the different kind of methodologies that you've used to do that, how easy you think that might be? I mean, I don't know what your plan is. I think it's incredibly difficult because now the wills are locked. We have no sense of inherited wealth. To be honest, I'm not sure how you would get to the bottom of how much they're worth, to be honest. Are you actually trying to do that then? Yeah, that's the aim. Or are you doing this for before the coronation? That is the hope, although <laughs> the time is ticking. <laughs> ticking. Yeah. OK, so the stakes are high and it's clear that this isn't going to be easy. We need to move fast. And soon, we realise that many of the usual methods we might employ as investigative journalists just aren't going to work here. One of the first and simplest obstacles that you immediately encounter is the fact that unlike any other kind of arm of the state, it's immune to the Freedom of Information Act. So whereas previously you'd simply be able to write under public law and say, we've got some questions about how the government is run, please can you tell us this, please can you tell us that, we'll get your response in a month, you just can't do that. You know, like that's, that's prohibited by law, so you can't kind of try and find information out that way. Then there's the wills that aren't opened, the archives which are hidden away for decades, the refusal by the palace to answer even the most basic questions. So the whole thing feels like trying to climb a mountain that's covered in fog and with no one to help you. Um, And you're kind of thinking to yourself at the outset, how on earth are we going to do this? Well, 
If we're going to climb a mountain, we first need to get to base camp. In this case, that's a good understanding of the main sources of money that the royals receive. So what do we know about where that money comes from? Well, there are several well-known funding streams. First, they receive annual income from what are basically massive real estate empires, the Duchy of Lancaster and the Duchy of Cornwall. The profits from these huge business and property portfolios go straight to the monarch and the heir to the throne. That's effectively kind of their annual salary. Um, that's definitely the single most important kind of private financial asset, if you want to call it that, that they have. It's just a river of cash every single year. We'll hear more about that next episode. Then there's the huge country mansions passed on to them, Balmoral and Sandringham, both bought by Queen Victoria and inherited by each monarch ever since. And finally, there's the sovereign grant, a sum of money paid out by the government every year to help keep the royal family running. Parliament just gives them a a, a sum of money every single year as well. The argument for the Sovereign Grant is that it's needed to keep the royal family going, to pay for the upkeep of palaces, their trips, the work they do, to keep the working royals working. Last year, it came to just over £86 million. All of it taxpayers' money that otherwise could have paid for schools, roads, hospitals. So who actually gets that money? And what do they do in return? For a simple question, it's hard to answer. The place to start is with the so-called working royals. That's the members of the family who show up at official openings, host charity dinners and meet foreign dignitaries. Some of them you'll have heard of. William and Kate are currently touring Pakistan as they learn more about the region, including the effect of climate change has had in the area. And others, maybe less so. Tonight, the Queen is helped by the Duke of Kent and his sister, Princess Alexandra. She's been doing official duties for 50 years. Did you say Anguilla? I said Anguilla, yes. I went to Anguilla. When? In 88. In total, there are 11 working royals who get paid via the sovereign grant or income from the Windsor's private funds. We want to find out exactly how many public functions these members of the royal family have done in return for all this money being given to them. It feels like this should be an easy one. The events are all public and the royals are there on official business after all. So we asked Buckingham Palace, can they give us total figures for how many events each working royal has done every year? But they won't tell us. Instead, they point us to the court circular, which is published daily in the Times newspaper and details each day's royal engagements. It's not much use. That's just a daily snapshot. We need a full set of data on who has done what over the last year. When we ask the palace for that, they say, quote, we are not resourced to provide a research facility of this nature. There is no complete list, at least not one that the palace is willing to share, of what duties the working royals have carried out. So it's time to turn to a source that's a bit more unofficial. I get on a train to Datchet, which is near Windsor, to visit a 91-year-old man called Tim O'Donovan at his house. There's, um, there's quite an interesting photograph, quite an amusing photograph here of the Queen and me. Those of us help were asked, and uh, we lined up to shake her hand as she left, and uh, she came, I don't think I know, <laughs> brought the house down. <laughs> Tim's house is like a museum, full of nearly every royal collectible you could imagine a biscuit tin to mark Charles and Diana's wedding, 
wind-up plastic models of the various senior royals which walk and wave, shelves that are covered in commemorative mugs and plates. There's even a letter addressed to Tim and signed personally by the Queen after the death of Prince Philip. Ah, yes, gosh. Well, I wrote her when Prince Philip died and I got the letter back. Oh, how lovely. Can I go read it? The reason we're here to visit Tim is because since 1979, he's been cutting out the court circular every day from the Times newspaper and pasting the clippings into a scrapbook. Well, the court circular is a, a report of the work of the royal family each day. Um, and it comes out in the Times and the Daily Telegraph. So you're literally going through the paper every day with a pair of scissors yes. and cutting it through? Wow. This is this year so far. And I tend to try and illustrate it a bit because it, otherwise it looks rather boring, just columns of court circular. It's very neat. It's arguably the most comprehensive and complete set of data on royal engagements in the country. And it's made up of newspaper cuttings and a table written out by hand on paper. So Tim keeps a running total of who's doing what. And at the end of the year, he sends it off to the press. The media tend to use Tim's figures to create league tables, comparing each royal, leading to headlines like Work Shy William after one year of low figures from the prince. Last year, he clocked up less hours doing royal duties than his 94-year-old grandfather. Tim disapproves of these comparisons. That's not why he does it. And historically, the palace hasn't been too happy either. A few years ago, Tim was contacted by the Dean of Windsor, who passed on a message from the palace, expressing their disapproval about what he was up to. Yes, they didn't like the idea of it being a league table. So I then put in there, or they advise me, to um, emphasise that the table of figures should not be converted into a league table of individual royal performance. Mm -hmm. They didn't like that. Uh, as they said, all engagements differ as to time and contents and preparation. Mm -hmm. so he was summoned to Buckingham Palace, and there they asked him to stop. But by then his work had got a considerable following, and he wasn't one to give up easily. So they let me get on with it. So as ridiculous as it might seem, these days, his system is nearly the only way to work out exactly how much the royals are doing. The scrapbooks of a 91-year-old man in Datchet provide more information than any online database our investigations team and engineers can find. But it seems incredible that without your work, most people wouldn't, wouldn't know about that. You know, you're shining, you're shining a light or giving us an insight into just what they do. Well, yes, I, I, you know, it's been worth doing, I think. From Tim's incredible scrapbooks, we're able to collate the figures for how much each working royal has done over a 20-year period. Our investigations team then trawls through decades of accounts to find out how much they were individually paid. Those two things combined finally gives us a good idea of who got what for doing what. Take Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent. He's perhaps best known for handing out the trophies at Wimbledon. And he received £18 million in payments since 1961, when you adjust for inflation. He averages 189 engagements a year, according to our analysis of Tim's figures. And then there's Prince Andrew, 
who's received £13 million for his work over 40 years. Prior to him being asked to step back from royal duties, he was averaging over 400 engagements a year. When we ask the palace about all this, they say private financial arrangements of royal family members should remain private, as they do for any other individual. But we have all these figures now, and they've never been collated and published before. We're beginning to make progress. Coming up, why the royal family are receiving more government money than ever before. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Okay, so it does seem like at least some of the working royals carry out a lot of engagements. But the more we look into it, the sums they're receiving in return seem pretty sizable. And far from being a quirk of history, this arrangement was all agreed quite recently. Sovereign Grant was created in 2011 by David Cameron and George Osborne. It replaced the previous funding system for the monarchy, which was this slightly old-fashioned device called the civil list. It had lasted for several hundred years, and it, the, the basic terms of the civil list were Parliament would vote to give them a certain amount of money. And there was a kind of annual debate on how they were to be funded, and Parliament would vote on it. The sovereign grant was created by David Cameron's own admission because he did not like that public debate. So that annual debate is now gone. Some in Parliament have questioned the level of transparency surrounding the grant. One of those is Lord Andrew Turnbull, who now sits in the House of Lords. 
But the philosophy underlying this is that ministers on both sides have taken the view that it does not want the relationship between crown, uh, between monarchy and government to be one of kind of hand-to-mouth existence where the monarch is always saying, I haven't got enough money, give me some more money. It was meant to provide A, some stability and B, in, to some degree, the, the opposite of transparency, some degree of kind of shielding from the, the harsh glare of um, media and parliament that the more important thing was to maintain the the dignity of the crown and not put the monarch in the position that he's always having to ask for more money or perhaps worse that the monarch is then incentivized to try and make money in other ways some of which would then be damaging to the reputation of the crown the grant works like this Centuries ago, the sovereign gave up huge swathes of land, known as the Crown Estate. And from then on, all the proceeds of that land went to the Treasury. In recognition of that, the royals were given an annual sum, which was voted on by Parliament. In 2011, that changed, and it was agreed the amount given each year would be decided by a formula linked to the profits of the Crown Estate, no matter how huge that turned out to be. Here's then-Chancellor George Osborne, who at the height of austerity, took time out to explain to Parliament why the government was giving the royals such a good deal. We propose that the Queen should receive a grant equivalent to 15% of the profits made by the Crown Estate in the financial year two years earlier. So we were looking for a mechanism which was broadly in line with the growth of the economy and was a permanent, a more permanent arrangement. Things just got better and better for the royal family after that. The grant started at 15% of the profits, but was recently increased to 25% to help fund repairs to Buckingham Palace, among other things. That means millions upon millions of pounds given over to the royal family each year. But according to Lord Turnbull... That's just a piece of uh, arithmetic. In my view, it's a dishonest piece of arithmetic. It is trying to tell the world that... The, the monarch is funding, um, is defraying the costs of maintaining the monarchy, when it is in fact it's been the taxpayer all along. And it turns out there's something of a bonus in the small print of the grant. Here's David Pegg again. There's one key detail to the way the sovereign grant was structured that has made it an unbelievably generous deal, which often gets referred to as the golden ratchet. Basically, the gist of it is the sum of money they get given can only ever increase. So the idea, the fundamental idea, right, is that if you tie the how much money they get given to the profits of the, of the Crown Estate, then when the Crown Estate's profits go up, they'll get more money. When the Crown Estate's profits go down, they'll get less money. The golden ratchet says, ah, ha, ha, ha. But if it goes down, you have to give them what you gave them the previous year, i.e., It never can go down. It can only ever go up. And when we look in the latest accounts, there it is, the golden ratchet in action. When it started, back in 2011, the government paid out £31 million a year. Um, It's now considerably more than that. Last year it was £86 and part of that was to pay for um, refurbishment to Buckingham Palace. But even if you subtract the amount that's for refurbs, it's increased way more than 
inflation because it's not tied to inflation. So it has been an enormously generous deal for them over the years. The, the amount of money they've, they've taken out of it you know, has increased very, very rapidly at the same time as everyone else has had to tighten their belt. Turns out that figure doesn't even always cover things you'd assume were running costs. State visits, ceremonial occasions, security. Some of that seems to still be paid for by taxpayers through various government departments. When he became king, Charles announced that he was content to leave the sovereign grant in place. I take this opportunity to confirm my willingness and intention to continue the tradition of surrendering the hereditary revenues, including the Crown Estate, to my government for the benefit of all, in return for the sovereign grant, which supports my official duties as head of state and head of nation. And as generous as the grant currently is, it could get even better for the new king. As the value of the Crown Estate booms, with lucrative wind farm deals on the horizon, the sovereign grant could rise to more than £300 million a year. That's prompted Charles to suggest that a reduction in what he's given might be appropriate for the public good, although he hasn't yet said by how much. When we asked the palace about it, they said, quote, Revenues received by the Crown Estate are a matter for the Crown Estate and HM Treasury. And it turns out that's not the only revenue stream. There's more money coming in. There's wealth hidden in a variety of different places and lavish gifts that seem to rain down from the sky. Next time. That's a record from 1912 and uh, he's just laying out all the times that they know where this ruby came from. Wow. Our team of reporters fan out across the country, trying to find out where and how King Charles and his family keep their wealth. And uh, it's all about digging through, trying to find your way. Haven't come to a dead end yet. That's it for today. You can read all our Costa de Crown reporting from our investigations team at theguardian.com. And you can follow a Guardian Live event tomorrow night on the 2nd of May with myself and Paul Lewis, the Guardian's head of investigations, on a special panel discussing our findings around the royal family's extraordinary wealth. For tickets, go to membership.theguardian.com. This series is produced by Lucy Hoff. It's reported and presented by me, Maeve McLennigan. Sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer is Phil Maynard. Join us for part two of our Cost of the Crown miniseries tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.